God Almighty, we tell you we love you, we thank you for loving us, and uh, as we come here, Lord, we come to study your word, we come to lay everything at your feet, we come to ask you to call us and to draw us into that place that we were created for. Father, some of us might not even know what that is, uh, probably a good, goodly number of us don't fully know what that means, but you do. And the scripture says, Lord, that you have come to do just that, that you've come to call and draw us into the place of freedom that we might live in freedom and that we might walk there, and that we might know what it means uh, to have that joy. So, Lord, uh, we put ourselves now, and we bring this place corner to corner under the blood of Christ. I pierce this place with the sword of your Holy Spirit, Lord, the power of the Word of God, through and through. We invite you, Lord, to open our hearts, our ears. You wash our hearts, our ears, our eyes, Lord, in your blood, that we may be unencumbered, that we may see and hear and be able to turn be healed. Lord, uh, this is your time and we're your people. Do what you want to do with us this weekend in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to introduce you to uh, the hazmat suit. I had a friend of mine phone me up one day and he works with the, uh, the fire department. And he says, Boyd, he says, can you use a hazmat suit? And I said, well, what exactly is a hazmat suit? Hazardous material suit. This is a hazardous material suit. If you get zipped into it, you have to take your own air supply because other than that, you're going to pass out real quick once you used up all the air inside of it. This is a suit that if you put it on, will allow you to live and function in a toxic environment as long as you keep it on. So my buddy, he said that uh, the Sastoon Fire Department was changing them out because they had uh, run out of time. They were dated. They bought all new ones and he gave me one of them. And I thought that would be a great illustration. We're going to use this illustration throughout the weekend. Uh, because when we talk about finding freedom from demonic powers, foundations for dealing with the demonic, that's what we're talking about. We're going to be talking about being free from demonic influence. Um, for those of you who, I don't know, anyone been in 1 John chapter 4 lately for their uh, devotions? I've been going through 1 John. And one of the things that John says toward the end, he says, we know that the whole world is in, under the power of the evil one. In other words, uh, and we'll go through the scriptures here a little bit coming up, but there's a lot of demonic influence in the world today. And if you go to places like Africa, they have no problem saying absolutely, it's everywhere. If you go to places like India, absolutely, it's everywhere. You go to places like, uh, you know, other places in Asia, uh, the third world, absolutely. Down to South America, absolutely. You come to Canada and a lot of us are going, what are you talking about? Doesn't make sense to me. But there is, there's a lot of demonic influence around us. Anyway, when we talk about foundations for dealing with the demonic, we're really talking about being hidden in Christ. Uh, the goal of this weekend is not to demon hunt. The goal of this weekend is to... Explore what it means to be hidden in Christ. We're going to talk about being uh, wrapped in his presence. And, and what happens when you get hidden in Christ, what happens when you get wrapped in his presence, is it, it's a little bit like putting on the hazmat suit. The presence of Christ surrounding you allows you to live and work and function in a toxic spiritual environment and remain safe and free. And so... I like my hazmat suit because it's a great illustration of that. I'd like to share with you just a little bit of my own experience as we get into tonight. My own experience in terms of the area of dealing with the demonic. 
Um, you know, as I look back on my life, my young life, um, I know that I ran into demonic things long before I ever even recognized them as such. Um, I was uh, probably about 18 years old, um, flunking out of high school. Uh, I did a very good job of that in grade 12, and uh, Lee knows what I'm talking about. And um, uh, got done with that and uh, went into my first summer of being out, out of high school. And God got a hold of me and began to shake my life up a little bit. And one of the things he did is he created a hunger in me. Um, you know, the, the, I don't know, the religion, the church upbringing I had was not attractive to me until my 18th year. And I don't know that it was even the church upbringing I had that was attractive, attractive to me. Uh, in fact, it wasn't. In my 18th summer, God showed up in my life in a different way. And he touched something in me that made me hungry for his presence. Hungry for more than what I had experienced to this point. And so I began this journey that God called me on. And one of my favorite scriptures, you know, that you'll hear me quote back and forth, up, up and down all the time, is John 6.44. No one comes to me, Jesus said, except the Father draws him. And so God is drawing. God was drawing me, and I know God has already been drawing you as well. Otherwise, you wouldn't be here. God has something for us. And he has something more than just simple cold religion. He has a relationship based on faith and the power of God that he wants us all to walk in. Anyway, he began to call me into that when I was about 18. I went on. I got married. I had kids. Uh, well, my wife had the kids. You know, I stood alongside. And uh, we uh, went into our lives. And uh, it was about 11 years ago for me. That as I, um, I began to struggle with some of my own uh, issues, there were things in my own life that I could not gain any victory over, and uh, they were tormenting me. And I was a young pastor, I was into my second uh, church at the time, and uh, things began to break down in my life. And I finally burned out, and I ended up uh, a basket case, out of work on stress leave, medicated to the eyeballs, uh, sleeping 16 hours a day. Just prior to that collapse, um, my wife uh, said, you know what, in the next town over there's, I heard about this guy who does deliverance ministry. I think we need to go to him. I said, fine, knock yourself out. So she says, well, let's go. So she drags me, drags me over to these people, sits me down in front of them. They ask me a bunch of questions and I look at them, the only thing I remember is, uh, there was, this is sort of the blurry, these memories are a little blurry for me. But the only thing I remember is looking back at them and saying, hooray. I mean, they're all bouncy Pentecostalish type of people, right? Driving me nuts, you know. Um, and uh, I remember looking back at them and saying, uh, I have no faith for any of this stuff. And they're all bright and perky and they go, well, that's all right. We'll believe for you. Go ahead, knock yourself out. So they gave me some homework. And the homework was all designed um, with one objective in mind. It was to put into the hands of Jesus, through repentance and belief, the things that I was carrying in my own strength, in my own life. And I went through this prayer process, and I've got to be honest, I, I can't say that, you know, I didn't, um, when, when, we, when we went through this process, um, um, I can't say that I had any violent reaction. Uh, there was no big thrash and bash. Uh, you know what I mean by thrash and bash? Where someone throws himself on the floor and starts flopping like a fish type thing and all that stuff. 
There was none of that. The only thing that began to happen for me was my wife began to look at me and say, something's changed about you. Something had indeed changed. Right after that prayer time, I collapsed. The doc slapped me on a bunch of pills, and I spent the next six months recuperating. Well, better than six months, but on the pills anyway. The next six months recuperating from a burnout. Coming out of that burnout, I headed down to uh, Argentina with a friend of mine uh, to do a little bit of ministry. And as I was down there and I saw the kind of ministry that was happening, I knew when I came back that I needed to begin to learn about dealing with demonic issues. And so out of that, um, that, that time in my life came the journey that has become this seminar. Uh, I need to say to you that Tonight, there's going to be no magic fixes for anybody. Prayer, when we talk about praying for people, one of my mentors always said, prayer is not a magic thing. If you pray the exact right prayer, it doesn't fix you. The thing, the thing that, that is core to all of this is the surrender to Christ. And so that's what we're going to be looking at. We're not going demon hunting. We are going... Surrender hunting. We're going Jesus hunting. Who is this Christ that has called us to the place of freedom? That's who we're looking for this weekend. Now, sometimes in the journey to find this Christ, or the journey of following the call he has in our lives, what happens is, is we run into the places in our lives where the devil has had a grip, or the demon has grabbed a hold. And then what we want to learn how to do is how to Give that grip to Jesus and let him set us free. So that's going to be our, our emphasis. I want to take you in your manual to page 5. And, I, and just a couple of things as we, as we open up here. The course objective or the seminar objective is to learn to let the Holy Spirit use his word to raise faith in us. And to equip us for more active service in the kingdom of God through the ministry of deliverance or the ministry of freedom I would say. Um, one of the things, you know, that I have come to find about, as I look back on my own walk of faith, I've spent so much time in my own life um, just surviving. And as, a, as a, I was a pastor for 11 years, a church pastor. In fact, I pastored this church for a number of years. And one of the things that always struck me is the number of people in my church that were here to find God so that how do you put it? They would, they would get a blessing or they would get some kind of freedom so that they didn't have to just, just survive anymore. And so God became very much about blessing my life so that my life could be better. And in that sense, it became a very selfish thing. And uh, God wants to take us beyond that. Because true freedom happens when your needs are enough taken care of that you don't have to worry about surviving anymore, you can live, you can look outwards and not be self-centered anymore. Well, okay. Definition of deliverance. Deliverance means being set free from the oppression or the influence of demonic power. Deliverance occurs when the gospel of Jesus is effectively applied, not just listened to, but applied in your life. By prayer and in faith to the area that you have become oppressed. The description of deliverance. And uh, you'll hear me, uh, um, how do you put it? You'll hear me talking about the both and 
thing uh, a little bit. One of the things I always, uh, you know, for those of you who've been to some of my other seminars, you'll say, you're going to say this weekend, I've heard that before, heard that in the other seminar. And I've got to be honest with you, I'm a fairly simple person. I don't remember stuff well. Like there's Brock down there. He's an engineer, got all the stuff in his head. It would have fallen out of my head long ago. So I've got to have some very simple things. So this is, this is built for simpletons. Um, did I just call everyone simpletons? Anyway, sorry about that, but uh, maybe you're not. God bless you. I am. Um, I found that when I used to go to seminars, I'd get to one seminar, I'd get done the seminar. By the time I'm into the second seminar, three-quarters of the first seminar is out the window. By the time I got into the third seminar, the first seminar is totally gone, the second seminar is half gone, and you get what I'm saying. And so what I wanted to do is I wanted to get some very basic tools. So I got, I got some tools. And the amazing thing about these tools is they can be used in a whole bunch of different scenarios, a whole bunch of different life situations. They can be used for, you know, this hammer here, for pounding nails. This hammer could be used for cracking um, um, walnuts. Yeah, you know, used to have, exactly, coming out of the back of the crowd there. Use it for that. Um, but you know what I mean. This hammer is good. It's, for, uh, it, it's a multi-use tool. And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to be looking at multi-use tools. And this is one of them. We want to look a little bit at the both-and perspective here. Oftentimes, when we look at uh, um, our Bibles, we have a tendency to look at it with an either-or perspective. Now, don't get me wrong. There's lots of places in your Bible where we're taught the either-or. I mean, Jesus said, you're either with me or you're against me. Somebody deciding not to make a choice for God, well, I don't want to make the choice. Jesus said, you've chosen against me. So there's this either or. You're either saved or you're lost. You're either bound or you're free. There are a bunch of either ors. But there's also a bunch of both ands. And so when we talk about deliverance uh, ministry, deliverance prayer or deliverance ministry is both catalytic, and catalytic means it causes stuff to happen. When something is catalyzed, you know, how many of you, when you were young, you, you're taking uh, elementary science and your teacher brings this big uh, bowl and he throws uh, vinegar, there's vinegar in the bowl, and then he says, we're going to show you a, a catalytic experience. And then he throws baking soda in the bowl and it boils up everywhere. When those two elements, vinegar and, uh, and baking soda, come together, they catalyze one another. And that's what deliverance is. It causes something to happen. Catalytic. It'll cause a breakthrough. But you don't just stop with the breakthrough. Because deliverance ministry also then needs to be consolidated. Consolidated. There we go. So there, it causes a breakthrough, but there also then needs to be ongoing training or discipling in how to live out this new freedom. I remember one lady, uh, she was demonized with, uh, with a spirit of control. And I'm going to talk to you shortly about how you name spirits. But she was demonized with a spirit of control. And when that spirit was renounced and broke from her, it was about a 45-minute prayer meeting. And uh, then I sat down with her afterwards, uh, and I said, okay... What you need to do now, you need to get into a Bible study, you need to get into a fellowship, you need to get active in learning your walk with God. And uh, I called her later on, and she said, 
Um, well, I guess it was about three months later. I called her and I said, how are you doing? I just wanted to do a little bit of follow-up. And she said, you know what? She says, I'm messed up. My life's messed up. And I'm thinking to myself, what did I do now? Because oftentimes when I was young, people would tell me uh, I messed stuff up. Eh? What did I do now? I just messed up somebody's life. And she says, no, no, it's a good messed up. But she says, it's messed up. She says, this experience was so amazing. She says, you, you have to understand, I controlled everything. I controlled my kid, I controlled my husband, I controlled the people I work with, I control everything in my environment, and now this spirit is gone for me, that control is gone for me, and I have to le learn a whole new way of living. A whole new lifestyle. I had a brother that was quadriplegic. And uh, he died when he was 32, and I remember praying for him to be healed. And one day as I was praying for him to be healed, and, and the Lord did not heal him, but, but I remember as I was praying for him to be healed, this thought crossed my mind. What would you do with a 32-year-old man who has been a quadriplegic his whole life, who was suddenly healed? And suddenly I thought, oh my gosh, you know what that would do? A man who might have a grade 2 education, a man who'd never walked, who'd never had, you know, he was protected, he'd never had a real out there social life, I mean, it would be a serious growth curve for him. Do you know what I mean? So you would have a catalytic event of the healing, but you would also then have to consolidate that through basically training him at age 32 how to live a whole new life. And, and deliverance can be like that. It's not just a magic fix where poof, everything's good because things change. And now you have to live a whole new, you have to learn a whole new lifestyle. Um, the term deliverance, I went looking in the dictionary. It means deliverance from sin and its consequences, believed by Christians to be brought about by faith in Christ. The origin is Latin, and it comes from the word salvare, to save. The word deliverance is synonymous with salvation. And when, you, when we talk about deliverance from the devil, we talk about being saved from the devil's influence. Saved from being in bondage to him. Saved from his hand and what he does. Okay. Let's turn to page 7. And what I want to start with here, because I, there's so much teaching wrapped around this stuff out there, that I thought, you know, best to start with uh, looking at what the Bible has to say about demons and about angels. Their names and functions. The scriptures speak of a number of different kinds of spirits. They speak of the spirit of a man. They speak of the spirit of God. Um, but they also speak of some spirits as being demons or angels. They speak of unclean spirits. At times the spirit's name is based on its function or the form of the idol it poses, uh, poses as uh, in the worship and, uh, structures of the culture of the day. So the scriptures I'm going to cite here um, are just basically me going through the Old Testament, the New Testament, and pulling out some of the scriptures that talk about these kinds of things. So let's look first at the naming of angels. First one I came up with was Isaiah 6. It says, one of the seraphim, this is Isaiah speaking now, he's having his vision of God showing up in the temple, and he goes, woe is me, behold, I saw him high and lifted up. He sees his vision of God, and in this moment of amazing humbling that he experiences. He says this, Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. And the seraphim goes on to touch his lips and says, Behold, your sins are cleansed, and so forth. 
But the name of this angel, this angel that is around God, that is at the throne of God, is a seraphim. Um, they gathered around the, the throne of the Most High God. Another angel, the angel Gabriel. Now, Gabriel is known as an archangel. He's like one of the high mucky muck angels. There's uh, Michael, angel of war. Uh, there's Gabriel. And Gabriel uh, defines himself. He shows up in Luke chapter 1, 19 to 26, when he says, um, comes into Mary's presence, and he says, um, Mary, God's chosen you to bear his child. And she's going, whoa. And uh, then we move from there into Christmas. So Gabriel comes and shows himself and brings that message to her. Uh, then he shows himself also in Daniel 9, 21. When Daniel is praying, and finally Gabriel shows up and said, you know what, when you first started praying, your prayers were heard, and I've been trying to get to you ever since. And here I am now. So Gabriel appears a number of times. He identifies himself as being the one who stands in the presence of God, and his task is as a messenger taking the word of God to whomever he is sent. Okay, next page over. Demons. <clears throat> Naming of demons. Let's start in the Old Testament. And we're going to give a little more attention to this because this uh, seminar uh, deals specifically with dealing with the demonic. The naming of demons in the Old Testament. Goat demons. Leviticus 17.7 says, They shall no longer sacrifice their sacrifices to the goat demons with which they have played the harlot. This shall be a permanent statute to them throughout their generations. So God speaking to his people or speaking about his people, as the law is given. They will no longer sacrifice their sacrifices to the goat demons. What's a goat demon? So we want to be real careful about goats, right? I was in Africa here a couple of years ago, and that was the way we wrapped up every formal gathering, was we had a roasted goat. And, uh, yeah. Anyway, goat demons. Um, there really is no other elaboration. As you read this passage, and that's one of the things, uh, one of the reasons I brought this passage out, was there are passages in your Bible where there's not enough information around those passages to, um, to build, you know, big doctrine out of. This is one of them. So what is a goat demon? Uh, as far as we can tell, or as far as I can tell, um, they're most likely goat-shaped idols used in cult worship. And they did have an effect on the, on the people of God. They caused them to prostitute themselves. One of the, things, one of the words that you're going to hear a number of times through the Old Testament dealings with demons is you're going you're to hear this word prostitute. And a prostitute, to, there are a couple of kinds of prostitution. One is the sexual selling of your body. Um, that's physical prostitution. But there's also spiritual prostitution, which is where we pervert ourselves and basically sell ourselves or give ourselves to um, ungodly forces instead of worshiping God. And this is what he talks about here. So, interestingly enough, too, um, these idols or these goat demons are identified as being more than just symbolic deities or carved idols. They are classified as being actual demons. Um, the understanding that idols were actually animated by demons is put forward in Paul in 1 Corinthians 10, 14-22, where he just bluntly says, he says, the idols that these people worship, they're not idols at all. 
they're demons in disguise. Why, well, you know, then I get questions. Why would, uh, why would demons want to masquerade as, uh, as gods like that or as idols? Well, simple. The biggest thing a demon wants to keep you or I from doing is worshiping God. He wants to keep our focus off of God so we don't surrender to Christ, so we don't walk in freedom. And so there are a lot of idols out there, and Paul calls them demons. Well, okay. Next one, evil spirit. Uh, Saul had this problem uh, with an evil spirit coming upon him. And you can read the larger uh, story in 1 Samuel 16. But the key verse is, Paul's attendant said to him, See, an evil spirit from God is tormenting you. So Paul would have these experiences where an evil spirit would come upon them, and it says they would, the evil spirit would torment him. And, it, and this torment was so obvious that even his servants would look at him and go like, Yep, that's an evil spirit, and it's on you right now. Um, so they could see it. They could see what it was doing, um, and uh, they called it evil. Interestingly enough, uh, they thought that the evil spirit was being sent by God. Um, we can unpack that at a little bit later date too. Um, James, uh, well, you know, James actually says, nothing evil comes from God, if we look at our New Testament. Um, but oftentimes in the Old Testament, you'll see uh, people blamed God for a lot of stuff. And you know what? Today's day and age, people still blame God for a lot of stuff that the devil does. Um, the understanding as you walk through uh, unpacking some of these passages about de demonic influence, when people are determined to go their own way, oftentimes God is much like a father who looks at a rebellious teenager and says, all right, you got to do what you got to do. Deal with your consequences. And that's what they're talking about. A spirit of prostitution in Hosea 4, 6 to 13. And uh, there's a large passage of scripture. I'm just going to unpack a little part of it. Uh, God says, my people are destroyed from lack of knowledge. Uh, you know, interestingly enough, in 1 Corinthians um, 1, uh, 12, that's exactly the way Paul talks about the spiritual gifts. One of those gifts being discernment of spirits, the ability to discern spirits. He says, brothers, sisters, I would not have you ignorant about spiritual gifts. Ignorance is not an option for us if we're going to walk in freedom. And so it is with demonic stuff too. My people are destroyed from lack of knowledge. They don't know me. They don't know about me. They don't know how to walk with me. And then he goes on and he says, Because you have rejected knowledge, I also reject you as my priests. Because you have ignored the law of God, I also will ignore your children. Um, the priests are the spiritual fathers of the people. They are the people tasked with training the people of God in what it means to serve him. The children, it says, he's not talking about your physical children, as in I will, I will abandon your infants. He's talking about the people, uh, the, the spiritual children of the priests. These are the people who follow them into the sin. The more the priests increase, the more they sinned against me. They exchanged their glory for something disgraceful. There's an element of exchange that happens here where what they had from God, their position they had from God, they exchanged it for something. And that, and that exchange happened in the way that they decided to follow false gods. So there was an exchange that happened. Then we're going to take it down here just down to verse, um, verse uh, 12. They consult a wooden idol and are answered by a stick of wood. A spirit of prostitution leads them astray. They are unfaithful to their God. This kind of image of a carved idol being uh, a demonic deception 
is embedded in Hosea, it's embedded in Isaiah, it's embedded in 1 Corinthians. So they are led astray, they talk to a stick thinking that they're worshipping a real God, but it's actually a spirit of prostitution that leads them astray. And remember we talked about spiritual prostitution. This is what a demon does. It leads us from our worship of God to worship of something else. That way it can separate us from our God. That's what, that's what the devil did in the garden. He said, look, you worship God, bite this and you can be your own God. You can be like God, which means you can be your own God. So, um, God says the spirit in this passage has come due to their rejection of the law of God and, and uh, they deliberately rejected what they knew to be right and they ignored his law. Um, the demon is named by its activity and its purpose. Let's go down a little bit. Um, to the bottom. Again, a spirit of prostitution. Same book, uh, part two. I know all about Ephraim, and Israel is not hidden from me. Ephraim, you have now turned to prostitution. Israel is corrupt. Their deeds do not permit them to return to their God. A spirit of prostitution is in their heart, and they do not acknowledge the Lord. So interesting, interesting about this particular passage this people have become so hardened in their sin. They're so determined to go their own way and do their own thing that they have actually hardened up to the point where they cannot turn back. Um, where this point is in a person's life, I don't know. But I know that I've dealt with numbers of people. I was dealing with a, with a, a, a person here recently who as we begin to pray the prayers of surrender, as soon as he got ready to pray, who? I can't say it, he says. I command you in Jesus' name to let him speak. I can't say it. What's wrong? Evil spirit, in the name of Jesus, I command you to let him speak. And he starts to speak. And he grinds his way through this repentance. And then he was set free. So the, the, the evil spirit tries to hinder, tries to take away the ability to repent. Now in the case that I just described, this man was only being hindered here with his confession. But the spirit of prostitution goes deeper. It hardens a heart. And a heart that's been hardened by a spirit of prostitution, well, how do you deal with such a heart? You can't fix it. All you can do is ask God to break it. And there, there are times, you know, I have people come to me and say, well, I got a friend or I got a loved one. And I know that they're struggling with demonic things. What do I do for them? Pray that God calls them and draws them. Pray that God breaks their heart. Pray that God makes them soft again so that they can respond to him. Because only God can turn someone around like that. Compare some scripture references, uh, 2 Corinthians, to the God of this age. Interestingly enough, because what's, what's here in the Old Testament, and again, let's, go, let's look a little bit at this. This is both and. This is now Old Testament, New Testament. I use scripture, interpret scripture. The way you understand the Old Testament is you look at it through the eyes of the New Testament. Because the New Testament is the writings of the apostles that expose what the Old Testament was truly saying. So we, uh, we look for evidence in the New Testament. And Paul basically teaches this very same thing. He says, to some the gospel is veiled. And even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so they might not see the light of the gospel or, or of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. So what the demon tries to do is it tries to, tries to make Jesus just another figure. 
And it's always amazing to me when I see uh, God open a person's heart and suddenly Jesus begins to make sense to them. When you see that happening in someone, you know that the devil is losing grip on their life and you know that the Holy Spirit is at work in them. 